Yeah. Welcome to Piecing It All Together. I'm Randy Woodley. I am Bo Sanders. And we are here to give you a special day today. Bo, tell them what's happening. We have a special guest. Our friend, Thomas J. Ord, has a new book out called God Can't. And so we're going to talk with him today about why God can't. And uh, if you were if you were an early listener to Piecing It All Together podcast, you will remember Tom's voice from one of the earliest episodes. He was our special guest. We had a live event back when we used to meet face to face to talk about uncontrolling love. And so we want to welcome you back to the podcast. Thanks for coming on, Tom. Man, it's my yeah. pleasure. Yeah, and people, you know, we don't have many uh, guests. We're not a podcast that does guests all the time. This is really just a, you know, one of several times we've done this. But when we think it's extremely important for you to hear, uh, we want to make room for that. And so when it comes to asking the most ultimate and intimate questions in life, most of us spend a lifetime running, trying to avoid the answers to the questions that we are afraid to ask. But Tom Orr runs towards those questions. And that's why it's so exciting here today to be able to talk about things that you may not have wanted or you may not have felt um, the freedom to talk about. And so we're so excited today to have you here, Tom. Thanks. I'm looking forward to it. It's an honor. You certainly do not shy away from the big questions that uh, make a lot of people gun shy. You sort of run towards them. What I'm curious, what draws you to tackling big issues like suffering and uh, isolation and loneliness and depression? What what draws you to that? I, I I have very little patience for the things in life that don't matter. <laughs> I don't want to screw around piddling on things that are just sort of superfluous. I want to get to the stuff that gets at the heart of things. And, and I don't do it just like, cause I want to be controversial. I do it because I really want to help people. I want to explore the things that are the most significant in our lives. Wow. Can you tell us Tom, how this started? Can you trace this back to the time in your life when maybe there was a, a change in what, because this kind of life um, is costly. It costs you. <laughs> To, to to make these kinds of decisions. So to t- tell us a little bit about how this came about. Yeah, it, it is costly. I think I've probably been a person from as early age who's asked questions, you know. I grew up in a fairly traditional church setting and I listened carefully to what was going on. I read my Bible. I tried to make sense out of life. And sometimes things just didn't jibe, you know. Um, things didn't fit together well. And I probably have this deep desire to have consistency, not only rational consistency, but consistency in lived experience. And those kinds of uh, things drive me to try to make sense out of life in ways that really um, are coherent uh, all across the board. Hmm. Do you remember the first time you you asked a question that you got in trouble for? <laughs> you know, I I have parents who were pretty good about uh, encouraging questions. I had several Sunday school teachers who were not so good at that. But um, 
my parents were pretty supportive. They, they saw the value of education, although they didn't have a ton themselves, but uh, they saw the value in that. They encouraged me. Um, and I think there was another event in my life that probably shapes me pretty deeply, especially in terms of this God can't idea that was mentioned earlier. Um, I was like one of these gung-ho evangelists in my early college years. I was into faith healing. I was, you know, memorize my Bible and I can out argue you um, using the Bible and that kind of thing. And then my final year of college, I took this course in philosophy of religion and I started reading really smart people who didn't believe in God, <laughs> who were from other religious traditions or were agnostics and atheists. And because I took the life of the mind so seriously, I um, got to the place where I couldn't believe in God anymore. In fact, I remember coming to pick up my fiance, who's now my wife, her getting into the car. We're both religion majors, both thinking about going into ministry and me turning to her and saying, I don't think I believe in God anymore. In fact, I said it stronger than that. I said, I don't believe in God anymore. Whoa. Um, and important time of uh, a faith journey, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah. Um, surprisingly, she yeah. stayed with me. <laughs> but uh, I also stayed at the quest to try to make sense of things. And I eventually came to the place where I did believe in God. But I think I bring up that experience just to say that um, when you come to a place where I was at, and you're starting to reformulate and reconceptualize answers to the big questions. When you've kind of started at zero, um, you're willing to maybe question some of the traditional ways of thinking that you've been given. Tom, I have to admit, I'm, I'm actually surprised to hear you say that this has been for you uh, an intellectual, like it started intellectual, and because you don't write from the head. I mean, in your writing, you write from the heart. You, I noticed, um, steer away from really long words, you know, multi-syllable words. You don't use the big vocabulary words that you learned probably in the academy. And you tell uh, stories about people's real lived experiences. So it's interesting that um, to hear you say that this start, sort of started in your head, um, but you write from the heart. So I find that interesting. Well, thank you. I mean, God Can't really is a book that is accessible, or at least my best attempt to be accessible, uh, using real life stories from real people, drawing from my own experience as well. Um, for me, I, I know this might sound like a cliche, but I'll say it anyway. I really want to unite my head and my heart. <laughs> I want to be both intellectually and experientially uh, honest and um, deep. Yeah, there's there's so much in the academy um, that tries to separate those two, mm -hmm. right? So you have scholarly work and you have practical work and uh, never the twain meet, but <laughs> in very rare occasions, we get to hear from uh, theologians and others like yourself who who do a good job of that. And so I'm, I'm really appreciative of that as well. Mm -hmm. You know, um, people, if you're listening to this uh, and, you know, you want to find out more, you can go uh, find Tom, Tom Orr's book. That's uh, O-R-R. -R. 
Uh, God oh, can't, oh. and then he also has a companion. Uh, uh, question and answers for God can't. Go ahead, Tom. Yeah, I was just going to say, you actually spell my last name O-O-R-D. It's a strange Dutch name. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sorry about that. That's all right. <laughs> it's right. It's right here on the screen. I should have looked. <laughs> um, yeah, so you have a family, right? Yeah. And your family's been on this journey with you as well. Mm. Um, I know a little bit about what it means to ask dangerous questions and the price that sometimes we pay and uh, not just alone. So can you tell us about that journey and tell you, tell us who you are as a family man? Yeah. So I am married. My wife and I have been married for 33 years. She's a school teacher. I have three daughters. All of my daughters are now in their twenties. My wife has been courageous, I think is a good word in the way she's, worked with me as my own mind has changed about various things. Um, it's not been easy for her. And um, in fact, five years ago, I was laid off from my position as a theologian at um, the university in which I had been teaching. And um, through a big controversy over me, basically, I mean, the, the, Official reason I was laid off is that there was a dip in enrollment, but the real truth is that I had been put through a kind of a heresy trial. And even though I had come through that trial successfully, uh, they still figured out a way to get rid of me. And um, man, talk they about always, difficult. They always things. find another reason. Okay. <laughs> they always find another reason. Yeah. Okay. We know the real reason. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. So, yeah, um, that was difficult. I mean, it's still difficult. There's still trauma surrounding that. But my wife uh, endured that time with me. Um, She's gone through some intellectual changes herself, but they're not identical to mine. She has her own mind, her own way of thinking. Um, But I'm grateful for her steadfast love, Mm -hmm. her courage to stick with me, despite the difficulties we've gone through. That's great. That's wonderful. Um, you want to give a shout out? What's your wife's name? My wife's name is Cheryl. Yeah, I do want to give a shout out you, to Cheryl. You dedicated you this did. book to her. Thanks, I did. Right. I did in part because um, I wrote this book that you've already mentioned, The Uncontrolling Love of God. And she and other people said to me, you know, you need to make these ideas more accessible. Mm-hmm. And she's oftentimes mm-hmm. said that. Um, I've written quite a few books for kind of the public or the, you know, the average person, but some for the Academy. And she always says, you need to write more books for the average person. <laughs> yeah. Wise woman. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so folks, as you know, Bo is the theologian here. Ah! Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, uh, they try to call me a theologian just because, you know, native American people uh, are not, used to being in these kinds of things. So I get called everything, but I'm not a theologian. So Bo, uh, there's some deep theological questions that we need to explore today. Okay. Do you want to start by uh, having some conversation with Tom about this? I would love to. I actually have one big one that I've been chomping at the bit. Good. Uh, <laughs> so one of the very interesting, I mean, the book's laid out in a wonderful way. You have uh, five beliefs that you put forward in a positive, constructive sense. You also have a section in the book where you tackle five bad or, or hurtful beliefs about God. Um, 
there are no footnotes. You have uh, some end notes, but it's minimal. So the right. book reads really smoothly. I mean, it's laid out uh, beautifully, but there is one part that I found really interesting mm -hmm. theologically, which is that uh, obviously this idea that God can't in itself is pretty inflammatory or <laughs> right. Like it, there's, you're putting forward a, a proposal there. That's just, it's going to grab people's attention, but you do this move um, a couple chapters into the book where you actually say, unlike other approaches that I've heard that are focused more on power. So an idea like God can't is focused on, well, you know, that's um, because of the way power or would be coercive or controlling, right? But you actually say God can't because of who God is mm. and you base it in the character, the person of God. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I didn't see mm. that coming. So that seemed really unique to me mm. um, to say that it's because of who God is that God can't. So you took it out of the realm of some, you know, theoretical or abstract idea about the nature of power or secondary causes or, you know, all the stuff that people always argue about a material reality and the, the physical world. And you actually placed it in the character of God. And I thought, mm. oh, I got to ask about that. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm trying to make a move that says something like this. Uh, if we think God is love, we think love comes first in God. If, we, if what we know best about God is that God is a caring, compassionate, loving, spiritual, omnipresent being, however you want to talk about it, then starting with love, how should we understand all the other things we want to say about God, including God's power? Um, some people start with God's power. Some people start with like the way they understand existence. Maybe some will start with classic thinkers in a particular tradition, Christian tradition or otherwise. <clears throat> I mean, I'm interested in all that stuff too, but I asked the question, what if you begin with the idea that God is something like a loving, omnipresent spirit? Mm -hmm. And if love is your guide, then what would that mean to talk about what God can and can't do? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting place to start. And I really appreciate you saying like, you know, for a lot of people, they start somewhere else, whether that's in classic thinkers, like the, you know, the, the ancient Greek concepts or whatever, they'll start in different places or they'll start with something really philosophical. So I just found it a really unique starting point. Hmm. So, well, so what is it, Tom, that God can't do? <laughs> yeah let's get down to the nuts and bolts yeah well let me start kind of at a big perspective and then move into my more unique proposal okay right. um i think some of your listeners may have heard the kind of maybe uh questions that you get in an intro to philosophy class that are perplexing like is God strong enough to make a rock so big that even God can't lift it? <laughs> um, you know, it's a vexing kind of question. Or maybe one that's maybe closer, maybe more obvious. Can God, make, uh, can God 
make two plus two equal 397? And these kind of weird questions that we sometimes ask, they're, they're basically the questions of logic. And many people are surprised to discover when they read through the major theologians in the past that almost every single one of them have said that God can't do what is illogical. God can't make two plus two equal 397. God can't make a married bachelor. God can't make a round square. God can't make a rock so big that even God can't lift it. So that kind of surprises some people. But then they say, okay, well, yeah, but there's lots of other things that are on the table. What else? So the next move I say is, well, maybe there's some things that God can't do because to do them, God would deny God's own nature. And here I start like pointing to things in the Bible that everybody seems to have missed. Like uh, the writer of Hebrews says, God can't tell a lie. The writer of James says, God can't be tempted. The Hmm. psalmist says, God can't grow tired. And one of my favorite ones is uh, the apostle Paul says, when we are faithless, God remains faithful because God can't deny himself. So the second move is kind of to say, some of the things God can't do, God can't do them because to do them, God wouldn't be God. (laughs) God be going against God's nature. Hmm. And then probably the most controversial one is the third step. I don't think God can control anyone or anything because I think God's love is inherently uncontrolling. And when I say anyone or anything, I don't mean just free will creatures. I don't mean just dogs, dolphins, elephants, and zebras. I mean, even down to the smallest things of reality. I think God loves everyone, everything, top to bottom, the simplest, the most complex, and God's love is inherently uncontrolling. Hmm. So this this issue of control, um, you know, we went through an enlightenment, right? And it was (laughs) sort of like uh, we, we... you know, we were gifted with uh, the all the folks of the Enlightenment who who ended up giving us this package that basically said that the um, objective is more important than the subjective. So now we split those apart, right? And so, what do we do about God? So either God, and and here's where I see the difference in the church, maybe even though each infects the other, but but so society says, uh, well, there is no God. Because um, uh, because God uh, is no longer in control of everything. But the church says, oh, God is in control of everything. And this is where we get most of our theology today, which is, mm. you know, hey, uh, you know, well, it was God's will. Or, you know, mm. uh, I'm just trying to find God's will. Or all those kind of uh, questions that, that reveal, like, well, we really don't think we have our own agency, right? Mm-hmm. So there's this dilemma about... Um, uh, who's in control, right? So if God's in control, I can't be in control. So that means the markets can't, you know, I can't control the markets. I can't, you know, do all the things that I need to make my human life. Uh, I can't control the nature. We're still trying to figure that one out, right? And paying a price for it. <laughs> and, and so we have all these questions about who's in control. So who's in control? Hmm. Yeah, well, I have an answer for that. But let me, before I give the answer, mention to Bo 
that it wasn't about 10 minutes ago that Randy said, you know, I'm not a theologian here. <laughs> I'm right. I know. I know. <laughs> this sounds, that question sounds to me like the guy who wrote Shalom in the community of creation, <laughs> who really is actually a theologian. Yeah. But setting I just, that aside. Like, just, pick up a few things here and there. So. <laughs> <laughs> the collector. <laughs> <laughs> well, if being in control means God is the one who does everything or even could do everything. In other words, some people will say, well, God doesn't control everything, but God allows things to happen. Mm. Then we've got some real problems on our hands. Um, there's been lots of crap that's happened in our lives, in the world, in history, in nature. Uh, think about the peoples who've been oppressed throughout history. I mean, Randy, I'm looking at you in the eyes and we know the history of what's happened to indigenous peoples and it's not been pretty. So if you think God is in control, then you'd have to somehow think that it's God's will for all the evil that we see in the world. Or if you don't think God did it, you have to say something like God allowed it. Mm. But saying God permits the atrocious evils of the world at least to me, doesn't paint God as particularly loving, not consistently loving it, at least. So yeah. and answering the one, question of, oh, go ahead. Well, it's just on a more personal level, you know, my, my wife and I lost several children along the way in our marriages. Mm. Um, it, one uh, stillborn and another uh, premature, but, um, but I'll never forget getting the card from a well-meaning Christian and they wrote, well, it, God just needed that little one to be with him. Yeah. And, and my wife looked at me and she just said, you know, what kind of a God would want that? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's the kind of, again, well-meaning people say that. But to me, it's not at all a satisfying explanation for what happens. Um you know, I, as you were speaking, I was thinking about people who have said things to me in, in recent years, well-meaning people have come up to me knowing what happened to me in my last job and said things like, you know, God's got a purpose for this. It's part of God's plan. And I'm like, I just want to punch him in the nose. <laughs> I believe in nonviolence, but I still have urges to punch people. <laughs> so... I don't think God is in control. That doesn't mean I think God is like off on Mars eating popcorn, watching all the suffering and saying, hey, sucks to be you guys. I think God is truly present with us in all times and all places, really active in the world. But God can't control anyone or anything. So when there is someone who is unjustly laid off or a miscarriage or a torture or rape or genocide, God isn't doing it and not even allowing it as if God could have single-handedly stopped us. I believe in an interrelated universe that humans in creation are interrelated and things can prosper. There can be true shalom, to use the word you also like, if, in fact, we learn how to live well, not only amongst ourselves as humans, but live well with other creatures and the earth. Yeah, now you're starting to sound like an, an, an Indian dude. So, uh, <laughs> I, um, I, <clears throat> I, I want to take a moment and pause um, for our listeners because... 
Um, I, I think maybe at this point, listeners are starting to get a grasp of the impact understanding this could make in their lives and their whole theological outlook. Uh, it, listeners, God is not that sort of like benevolent dictator mm-hmm. standing over controlling your life and who gets blamed for everything under the sun. God is something different than that. Mm-hmm. And, and I hope that um, you'll continue listening and, and listen to, to, to what uh, uh, Tom has to say about this, because it will change your whole life. It will change your whole outlook on life, and it will change your relationships with other people. Mm. Thanks for saying that, Randy. I was recently at a conference and a pretty well-known um, philosophical theologian whose name I won't tell you on air <laughs> um, <clears throat> had only read a small portion of my work. And he thought that I was someone who in, philo- in theological circles is called a deist. That is the idea that God began, created the world, but now has a hands-off policy. God isn't present and active, but God created it. And it struck me that um, a lot of people think it's an either or choice. Either God manipulates and controls everything as the sovereign one of the universe, or God just says, hey, you're all on your own, use your free will. And if it turns out bad, you know, tough luck. But think about what it's like to be a loving parent. A loving parent isn't manipulating and controlling their kids, but they're also not an absentee father, you know, just letting the kids do whatever. They're trying to influence them in a loving and positive way that doesn't control, but is also not, you know, just like absent. And I think that's a pretty good image to talk about this loving, omnipresent spirit that we call God. Yeah. you're, You're not a theist. No, No, I'm not a deist. (laughs) In chapter two of your book, you actually talk about five unhelpful views of God, different metaphors or word pictures that people use. Uh, Use the brick wall that's unaffected, the eye in the sky, the CEO of the universe, the micromanager, and the clean freak who can't be affected by our or sullied by our uh, polluted creatureness. But one of the things I really like about your constructive approach is you don't just say no to those things, mm-hmm. but you actually say some yes. And one of the things you talk about uh, that I really want to make sure we, we touch on is because you put forward that God is a non-bodied spirit, mm-hmm. that God needs us, that we partner with God. Because I think if your book had ended on the fourth chapter, which is that God rings good out of the bad, that would have been, I think, a nice book. I think that would have been fine. But it's that last part, you go the extra step and actually say how we participate and partner with a non-bodied spirit. And that was, I, I think, a really powerful corner for you to round at the end um, to not just deconstruct other people's views, but to actually put forward a a positive, constructive view. Mm, Thank you for noticing that. And, and for those kind words, Um, you know, 
a lot of my conversation partners are people who have had some connection with Christian history, whether or not they're professional theologians, philosophers, or people who just kind of have been shaped by uh, theological traditions, especially the Christian tradition. And I find today that there's a number of people who want to reject the idea that God is controlling everything and we're just robots. And they want to embrace the idea that uh, we have some kind of agency and freedom. And they'll say something like this. Isn't it amazing that the sovereign God of the universe has invited you and me to play a role, to participate in what God's doing in the world? Mm -hmm. And when they say that, I'm like on board. But what they really usually have in the back of their mind is the idea that God could be controlling if God wanted to. And if we don't cooperate, if we don't participate, if we don't use our agency, well, God's just going to get the job done anyway. And it really doesn't ultimately matter what we do because, but God's just kind of playing nice and saying, you know, help out a little bit if you want to, but if you don't, Hey, I'm going to make sure everything turns out. All right. Well, the view I have says, Nope, what you and I do ultimately matters. Love can't win unless we cooperate with God. I make some people really nervous, but other people like hear that and they say, yeah, finally a theology that fits the way I live my life. Yeah. yeah. That is so interesting. Like I am helping take care of my three-year-old nephews right now. And, you know, I role play a little bit with them. Like when we're making cookies, I let them participate and blah, blah. But, you know, ultimately I'm going to go behind them and clean up and I'm going to make sure, right. I'm really doing it. I just, you know, I sort of, <laughs> you know, placate them a little bit to let them participate and it's fun. But if that's how God is with us, that's a very different picture than a non-bodied spirit actually unable to pull the levers and manipulate and control. Yeah, that's a great illustration. And and you said it's your nephews that you do yeah. work with. Yeah. yeah. Um, when they get to be 21 and you try to do something like that, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not even that old. I mean, uh, so actually, I think one of the interesting things that I think a lot about is in scripture, there's a lot of uh, stories or analogies in which God is painted as a loving mother or loving father. And it seems like a lot of times when people think about that and then imagine us, they imagine us as two-year-olds or five-year-olds. Mm -hmm. But what if you imagined us as 21-year-olds? What would be an appropriate way for a loving mother and father to treat a 21-year-old? That's different than a two-year-old. And I think that's a much more better way to think about the God-creature relationship, the divine mother or father in relationship with a, a full-grown adult who's a child or, or uh, who's a child. So interesting. Yeah, instead of the infantile view yeah. of humanity. So I have a couple of questions. Um, one of them is uh, you, you are an excellent nature photographer. Oh, and thanks, I, Randy. I just really, yeah, you, you, your photography is just incredible and you get out there in the world and, and on earth and you, you find beauty and, and, uh, you know, I'm wondering, uh, as a person who, for whom the earth is the starting place for my theology and my spirituality and, uh, all of that. So what is the connection that you, cause you're out there, right? I mean, you, I, I can tell 
from correspondence earlier that you love being out there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what's the connection between uh, what you experience uh, in nature and creation and your own spirituality and where this theology is, is you know, came about? Yeah, I'm, thanks for saying those nice things. The, the non-human world is really important for me to understand my life and existence in general and, and God. Um, there are so many reasons I like to hike and spend time in nature with animals, insects, and other creatures. One of the things I like is that um, it points to the diversity of experiences and values in the world. Hmm. Sometimes when I'm just hanging around with humans in human-created buildings, human-created cities and towns, talking through human-created computers, I don't get a very full notion of the diversity of life on the planet and the ways in which life is expressed. I sometimes, when I'm doing my photography, I'm oftentimes looking for moments of beauty. And sometimes people will say, oh man, I would just love to go out in nature with you and see all those beautiful spots. And, and I say to them, there's lots of beauty in nature, but there's a lot of ugliness too. One of the things, this is going to make me sound weird, but I'm going to say it anyway. One of the things I like about hiking is I get to see a lot of death. <laughs> I get to see part of life. Yeah, it's part of the world in which we live. I mean, yeah. when when things die in the in the natural world, at least the the world that's not curated by humans, they rot. Other creatures eat them. And there's just something about that that makes me think this is real. Like, you know, a human dies. One of my good friends died recently. I heard that she died. We went to the funeral. There was no casket. I never saw her dead body. It's like she just zipped into nothingness. Mm. And there's something I think important about seeing dead things in the world. Mm. Um, And being a spending time in nature that's just one element of it, but that's an important element for me. Yeah. And I don't know, did you grow up on a farm? I did. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you're a farmer, you see death all the time, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of people sort of can't understand that, uh, that sort of, but, but this is where you see the reality of the cycles of life, you know? Yep. I thought you were going to say when, okay. I was going to say, uh, the other good thing about being on a farm is you get to see a lot of sex, uh, at least the mechanics of sex. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I had kids who grew up on the farm, right? So I got a lot of those questions. uh, Randy, what did you you think Tom was going to say? Well, I I thought he was going to say, when the person said, can I, I'd love to go with you out there. He was going to say, well, don't you realize that I do this to get away from people. So, <laughs> like Charlie Brown's, uh, you know, they're trying to wake up Charlie Brown and he says, it's too peopley outside, you know? Uh, so, uh, but, but I remember one time my, uh, my son, uh, my youngest son, Redbird, when he was small and, and uh, the goat was having sex with one of the other goats. And I said, Oh, well, you know, I was trying to think of what, what would relate to, I think he was maybe about six, 
five or six at the time. And I, I said, well, he's marrying her. And then he came back about 10 minutes later and said, he's marrying several of those ones, Dad. <laughs> you got polygamy here on the farm. <laughs> Polly Embry. That's right. <laughs> oh. so I have a couple more questions. Bo, you probably got, um, you know, I, I have a couple questions about, well, what is, what is God in Jesus then? Uh, oh. Is, you know, like, what's the agency there? And what about miracles and some of these things that I think might be going through other people's minds? But do you have some stuff uh, before we get to that? No, yours, those questions are way more interesting than mine. I was just going to say that if God's not in control, are things out of control? But mm -hmm. I think we've talked a lot about uh, that. Uh, your questions are more interesting. Let's go that direction. Well, I, I like that, too. I mean, Tom can, can deal with any of this he wants. But, but this whole thing of creation right now, I... You know, um, creation has been set in a way uh, to where it's it's consistent. And the way it, I think it's consistent is that it is adapting. It's always adapting. And this is a, oh. and, 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 and I wonder if that is also one of the characteristics of of God. Uh, uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, so, so now you, you sort of have a menu before you, uh, Tom. Uh, just talk about whatever you'd like. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll start with that one. Um, yeah, it's, it probably comes as a surprise to some people when I tell them that I think God changes. And then I have to talk about what I mean by that. So when I say God changes, I think God is actually an experiencing spirit. God has real experiences in giving and receiving relationship with all of creation, especially the complex creatures like you and me. And that means that God's experience is really affected by what happens. It's actually a, a pretty biblical idea, but it's not been an idea that a lot of people have kind of clicked on in their heads, in part because a lot of famous Christian theologians have come right out and said, no, God never changes. And they've pulled a few Bible verses here or there that seems to support that. Um, my view is that God's nature doesn't change. God's always going to be loving, but God is an experiencing spirit and God's experience changes. So that's a way of saying God adapts or God evolves. Again, those words are going to strike some people as odd, but remember that I'm saying God's nature is steadfast, but God's experience as a God of love who is giving and receiving, that is what is adapting and changing moment by moment in real relationship with others. Yeah, I, I sometimes think that well, I often think that uh, as I see nature adapt and do what nature is supposed to do. So, so weather is doing what weather needs to do to get rid of the people who are making such a mess of it, right? <laughs> so uh, I like to say that the, the earth is spitting out its inhabitants, as it says in Deuteronomy, you know, right now. <laughs> because uh, we're, we're taking a rightful place that doesn't belong to us. Mm -hmm. And so the earth is is adapting the way that nature does adapt. And there's there's all kinds of models of adaptation and things like mm -hmm. this, but, but, but yeah, that, that comes from somewhere, right? I mean, yeah. uh, you know, can, can God create things that are not in God's nature, you know? So yeah. I don't know. Those are, those are, are deeper questions, but what we consider, this is what I wanted to get to, because uh, you talked about diversity a little earlier. Um, we think that this, uh, 
a natural order is actually chaos because we can't control it, right? Mm. And so what is actually order in sort of God's purview is what we consider chaos. And, and, mm. and what we consider to be order is control. Mm. And so we're always grasping to control everything, our theologies, God, nature, except each other. Um, and that is, the, to me, the opposite of, of God's um, character. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, I've been thinking about those ideas from a different context. Let me try this on you guys and see what you think. Um, a lot of Christian theology presupposes that if things are going to be right, we got to get back to something that was right in the past. It might be the Garden of Eden. It might be the early church. It might be a particular theologian's thought in history. But somehow that the Christian life is to return to some ideal state or way. But if it's true that we live in a universe of movement, that involves chaos and order and not, we're not always sure which is which, maybe our goal, God's call, is not to return to something that was fixed in the past, but to try to move away from the, the crap that's happening in the present to something like shalom, the kingdom of God, the reign of love. We could use all kinds of language. Uh, maybe we shouldn't be conservative in the sense of thinking everything was right sometime in the past. We got to get back there, but we need to move into something more beautiful. God's calling us in the future. Yeah. Well, there's a tinge of utopianism in that, that paradigm, right? That uh, uh, in utopianism, I don't, I don't know. I mean, Christianity is, is highly Western Christianity is highly utopian. Um, and I don't know of a utopian vision that hasn't caused harm somewhere along the way. Mm. Um, because it, it always ends up being that the, those bearers of that vision believe that the the uh, ends will justify the means they use to get there, right? Yep, so I'm not yep. sure utopianism is a good exercise for human beings. So yeah. I'm kind of on board with you there. I'd like to like to explore that more. Bo, Bo you got thoughts? No, I've really been enjoying uh, listening in to that conversation. I... Uh, I know that our listeners are really going to enjoy this. And I just want to encourage people that if you uh, are intrigued by these ideas, please do follow up. Uh, I'll put it, the link in the show notes and get the book. God can't. And you also have what I think is probably for me, <laughs> a more interesting follow up with uh, responses to people's questions. Like, well, wait a minute. If God can't, why pray? And some really interesting uh, real-world applications. So I'm just enjoying this a lot. And I'm thinking about, uh, you know, when we put this out, you know, I always try and listen to it through the my imagined ears of the <laughs> listeners and the feedback that we're going to get. And so I just wanted to say uh, this has been really interesting. So Tom going on today and giving us uh, so much time. This has been really quite fascinating, actually. Well, it's been my pleasure. And thanks for mentioning that uh, follow-up book. Uh, the God Can't book is really addressing the questions of suffering and evil and 
proposing what I think is an actual solution to this question that so many ask, you know, why if God is powerful and loving, is there crap in my life and in the world? But so many people then heard me say, God can't single-handedly stop it. And they said, well, okay, but how do we understand miracles and Jesus and creation and uh, prayer? And, and so, yeah, that second book is a chapter-by-chapter chapter answer to some of the biggest questions people had after they heard that God can't single-handedly prevent evil. Yeah, and so, folks, you're not going to get all those answers today, um, but uh, you will get a lot of those. I do have one final question I want to come to before we, we close out today. Um, before that, uh, um, yeah, I just uh, want to say that I, I looked at your uh, thing about Thanksgiving prayers oh. this year, which was excellent. Um, and, and that's a good thing uh, right away before you even get one of the books. You can go to to Tom Ord, O-O-R-D, website. Uh, Tom, what's the, the address of your website? You know, it's my full name, Thomas J. Ord, and you spell my middle name, J-A-Y. Oh, yeah, okay. And, uh, and, and he gives some examples of like what would be uh, kind of prayers inconsistent with this theology and pr uh, Thanksgiving prayer that would be okay. consistent. And that, that was very helpful for me to see that concrete. Mm. Last question I want to ask. Okay. Um, before we go, and that is, what are some of the unanswered questions you still have about great mystery? God? <laughs> yeah. So one of the questions that I continue to wrestle with that I don't have a fully satisfactory answer is that how it is that this Jesus guy seemingly does things right, loves perfectly. You know, I wasn't there. I don't have an eyewitness view. Maybe Jesus screwed up occasionally. But according to the biblical text, this guy loved perfectly at all times and all places. And if that's true, how did he pull that off? Because I want to be that kind of person. I've already screwed up, so I can't know I can't do it. But I want to move in that direction.